From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Open season's officially underway for federal employees that want to make changes in their health, dental, and vision insurance plans. The Office of Personnel Management says it'll automatically re-enroll employees that don't specify changes in the same plans they have this year. Federal Times reports open season runs through December 14th. The Space Force has a new priority list from its uniformed leader. Chief of Space Operations General Jay Raymond lists five items in his new guidance, including developing joint warfighters and creating a digital service. Defense News reports Raymond wants his force to move fast on its mission. Hack the Army 3.0 is coming next month. Hackers can target the entire Army.mil domain in the exercise that starts December 14th. FedScoop reports the Army awarded $275,000 in the last iteration of the exercise. The next administration, most likely a Biden administration, will encounter the same problems with hiring and workforce issues the Trump administration's faced. Workforce experts seem to agree on the problems, but not the solutions. Terry Girton is president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, I joked with you before we went on the air that this, this transition will fit right into the sweet spot of what Napa's been studying for a long time. What exactly do you have recommendations-wise as a body of work for the incoming administration? Well, Francis, it's always a delight to be with you this morning. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled to highlight our Election 2020 project. Um, the Academy's been working on this for almost a year. Um, and we released the full suite of 16 papers um, last Thursday related to our grand challenges. So each one of them has a set of recommendations that the next administration can take on in its very first year to move the needle on all of our grand challenges, everything from safe and secure water systems to uh, modernizing and reinvigorating the public workforce. Um, and it's things that they could do right now while they're getting everything else set. So I went right to the reinvigorating the workforce uh, issue, Terry, and you have recommendations there, seven total, and there's a couple that jumped out at me. The first one that struck me was building interest in public service and government as a career through a funded campaign initiated by the White House and managed by OPM. I recall an ad campaign, and I think it was at the end of the George W. Bush administration, where there were TV ads and so on. OPM did them. Do we know, do we have data from that campaign that indicates how another one could be effective? I'm not sure if, if we have the specific data, but we're following on here the recommendations of the National Commission on National Military and Public Service, where they really advocated, based on their three-year commission work, a whole campaign that reimagines uh, and reintroduces public service to the people across the country. Because what they found as they went around was that there aren't a lot of folks who really understand how to get engaged in the public sector workforce. Um, and so we certainly endorse that. But I think, you know, it's one thing to say we want to introduce more people to the public sector as, an, as a career opportunity. But that doesn't work if we don't fix the hiring and onboarding and retention pieces as well. We could build up a lot of demand and not be able to satisfy it. And that kind of fits with the other three recommendations that jumped out at me that, that you and your team make, Terry. Um, these are things that I think everybody agrees on. But as I said at the beginning, 
not everybody agrees on how to fix them. One of them is improving the quality of managers and supervisors in government. This is an issue we've seen in the FEVs for probably ever since they've been doing the FEVs, but I'm not sure any, that there is any kind of unanimity about how you fix that problem, is there, Terry? Well, there's not, but one of the things that I think people do agree on is that you have to offer training. Um, and one of the things that we recommend is setting aside a portion, a percentage of the, the federal salary pool, for example, to actually fund training for leaders and managers so that we are intentional about that development process and using, all other, using other sorts of tools like uh, reassignments, career progressions, um, cross-agency details and those sorts of things to really build the leadership and management strength in our middle, middle tiers. Um, the next one that I think is, is particularly useful is refocusing OPM, and you write here, with an emphasis on responsiveness and flexibility in talent management. Now, Mike Regas says if for some, in some way the Trump administration continues for a second term, they're not pursuing the merger. I have a hard time imagining that uh, the Biden administration will do anything like that uh, during their time in office. What does a reinvigorated OPM look like in your view, Terry? Well, a couple of key features. The talent management piece is really important so that there's a strategic approach to career development and individual development. That's essential if you want to satisfy the, the desires of a 21st century workforce. But we um, would articulate that they need to be um, over, they need to be a central policy uh, shop that's really driving innovation across all of the federal agencies, regardless of which personnel system they're under or which personnel title they're under. So even as we went back to our no time to wait papers from a couple of years ago, we want them to be focused on driving policy and, and creative personnel strategy and less on the compliance issues associated with Title V. What has to happen? Who needs to do what? to give the, that sounds like a, a terrific amount of freedom to give that agency. Who has to grant that freedom to that agency? Well, it's a matter of whether they take the freedoms that they're already authorized, I think. Um, and one of the key features that will enable that is some consistency in leadership. Uh, OPM is such a critical organization, and yet they go on and on and on with almost temporary directors or acting directors. To really drive a culture change like this, you've got to have people who are in leadership positions, who are empowered to make change, and who are there long enough to see it through. We have about a minute left. I want to throw out the last one of these that really struck me. They're all good, but um, identifying and implementing modern assessment processes seems to me to also be tremendously important, Terry, because right now people are just saying, yeah, I'm really good at this, and, and folk kind of have to take their word for it. Right, right. And this is one that um, our fellows consistently emphasize. Um, and the, the current administration has made some progress in piloting these sorts of things. But the, we can learn a lot here from commercial industry and how they bring on folks and how they do assessments that are specifically re related to the skills and attributes that you need to be successful in positions. And so one of our uh, recommendations here is that we learn from that and we bring in these new kinds of assessments um, and you use uh, assessment panels who can really uh, tell from the applications whether or not people have the skills that they assert that they do. And those modern assessment tools will give us a lot of new information to really make sure we're making good hires on the front end. Terry Gerton, a lot more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks for coming on as always. 
Always a pleasure to be here, Francis. Thank you. Up next, driving innovation in energy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Air Force's effort to find new solutions to save energy and money. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. AFWorks, the Air Force's innovation organization, will put on the Reimagining Energy for the DoD Challenge. It's looking for both immediate solutions and long-term ideas. Michael Wu is principal at Converge Strategies and a resource security fellow at New America. Michael, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The Air Force describes the challenge this way, uh, the reason they're doing this. The need to build more resilient infrastructure and supply chains has become more urgent in the era of great power competition. The time has come to reimagine our usage, generation, transportation, and storage of energy. Are things like this challenge a good way to go about doing what the Air Force says it needs to do? Francis, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, absolutely. This is exactly the kind of approach that our military needs to be taking to take, the, to take seriously the threats that we face in the 21st century. Um, if you look at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where our energy supply um, created huge tactical vulnerabilities for us on the battlefield, and if you think about some of the near-peer adversaries that we're likely to face in the future, and the importance that energy has to every aspect of military operations, uh, it, it's going to take things like this that are actually reimagining uh, the way in which we fuel and power our forces uh, to, to bring about the kind of force structure uh, and capabilities that we're going to need going forward. And what I took away from what I read between the lines of the six areas where this challenge will focus is, I, I read the national defense strategy between the lines of every single one of these. Fixed and mobile energy generation, energy transmission and distribution, fixed and mobile energy storage, new warfighting and operational equipment, data availability, energy culture policy and education all strike me as challenges that are explicitly driven by the NDS. Do you think I'm reading that right, Michael? I think that's right, but I think it goes even further back than that, Francis. I think it um, relates to the kinds of, the, the way we've changed the way we fight. Um, we used to be uh, a, a force really heavily set on conventional fights with um, you know large battlefields and very clear lines between those battlefields. And now what's important is resilience and flexibility. And that goes for both our forces that, are, that would deploy in a conflict, but also our capabilities here at home. So uninterrupted access to electricity, you'll see is a part of the AFWORKS challenge for um, for our facilities and defense assets here at home that are providing critical support to whether it's intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, um, whether it's early uh, early warning radar for the possibility of um, you know missile strikes. Those are kinds of things uh, that are happening here at home and are powered here at home, but are providing critical capabilities to combatant commanders around the world. Is it unusual or noteworthy that the issue of data availability for improved planning and decision-making should be of interest to energy practitioners in the DOD? No, you have to be able to have um, informed risk. So you have to understand how you're using energy, where you're using energy, and how you can um, be flexibly uh, deploying that energy in the future uh, to meet whatever risks, whatever needs, whatever um, urgent needs come up in conflict. And so 
I think it's critical that commanders have that information in the field, um, but also that we're optimizing those things here at home as well, because the, uh, the, the most secure megawatt is the one you don't need. It's an interesting way of looking at it. And another way that I think is interesting of looking at the energy issue is thinking about energy culture and education. What do those mean in the context of the Department of Defense, Michael? Yeah, we need an energy aware and a climate aware workforce. Um, I think that's gonna be critically important moving forward um, for a couple of reasons. Number one is um, we are talking about really high-end capabilities um, and really advanced technologies. And we need a workforce that's prepared to implement those um, both within the service members and civilian workforce. Um, and then the second is, um, in order to understand the kind of strategic environment that we'll be facing in the future due to things like climate, due to global instability, um, and due to the advanced nature of some of the threats that we face, um, it, it's gonna require everybody to be aware uh, not only about the weapon systems and platforms that they operate, but the infrastructure that supports those weapon systems and platforms. Uh, the term climate aware, I think, is particularly apropos because one can believe what one wants to believe about how things got to be the way they are. But for example, in the Arctic, it is what it is. We know that the flow of, of water there, uh, the freeze is not nearly as hard as it's been historically and so on. What does that term climate aware mean? What does a, a climate aware official in the department do or think or learn or read, Michael? Well, I think that's the most important thing about this entire conversation, which is um, it doesn't matter what's causing uh, the changes in the global strategic environment right now. What matters is the global strategic environment. And we're creating um, entirely new places for resource competition, as you mentioned in the Arctic, Francis. Um, but we're also creating um, instability in places um, all across the globe. And we need to be uh, very cautious and very um, and very aware of those of, of those situations, those evolving situations, because we've seen that they can lead to conflict. We've seen that they can lead to greater instability. Um, and we're going to need more flexible forces to respond to uh, the challenges of tomorrow uh, than we have today. Uh, but 20 seconds left, Michael. What will you watch for this challenge in particular? I So I think the number one thing I'll watch is actual projects come out of them um, that are uh, that are meaningful changes to the way the department is conducting its business around energy. The Air Force has done a really great job of, and a number of different organizations within the DoD have done a really great job of creating these challenges and creating a lot of attention and excitement around changing um, the energy perspective of the Department of Defense. But what I wanna see now is action and I wanna see these, um, these technologies transitioned into the regular way we think about running and operating our military. Michael, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Francis. Up next, the presidential transition and acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, keeping the big deals on track from one administration to the next. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
welcome back. As the presidential transition process continues, acquisition officials may have to make some adjustments. Making that process as seamless as possible will require coordination and communication with the entire acquisition community. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting, former chief acquisition officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Greg, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. I take heart, I guess, in this whole transition process with the fact that I, I had a hard time finding any acquisition officials across government that are politicals and thereby will be transitioning in or out of a new administration. Is that a positive or is that a neutral or maybe potentially a negative for some of the biggest acquisition programs across government, Greg? Uh, so Francis, uh, good evening, thanks for having me. I, I think that's a, a very good and appropriate observation and it's a positive. I think anytime we can have some additional stability during this time of transition, it helps agencies and helps their missions. So uh, while you know at some point you want to get those filled, uh, having some stability through this process is very positive. Go back to your CAO days, CPE, whatever you want to call it, whatever it's called at the particular agency. What are you prepping now for the people who will be coming in eventually? to understand where the biggest procurements in your agency are, regardless of what kind of agency that is? Well, there's, I think there's two big things that, that agencies will be focusing on now. One would be really doing a review of their major initiatives and their major acquisition programs. And, and that's something that's probably not done uh, enough, even within organizations. But right now, they'll be running those to ground and really trying to answer the question about how well is their program going? Every program manager can answer that first question and they'll say, my program's going great. <laughs> but it's that second question about how do you know that agencies really need to be digging into. And when they get that information, working with the transition teams uh, is a next great step. Right? Each agency has an internal transition team that's preparing smart books. They're putting together briefing papers. The acquisition community needs to really be leaning in with that group and coming to the table with some issues, whether it's improving requirements development, increasing simplified acquisition processes so they can speed up uh, the time frame. You know, they need to come to the table prepared. And when they brief, they need to understand there's smart people sitting across the table that care about the mission and understand their function. All right, if so, so reverse then. If somebody's going to walk into that meeting as a member of the new administration, at least on a, for a transition purposes, what questions should that person ask that maybe the program manager isn't expecting necessarily, but will help that person who's coming into the agency really understand the status of these big acquisitions. So I think un understanding the status is important, but also I think they should understand the why. Uh, what's the intent behind the program and mission, right? To keep that part of aspect of mission fulfillment up front. And then from that, I think asking about deliverables, uh, asking about where they are in terms of cost, uh, if it's a program that has earned value, asking where those baselines are, uh, and then also reviewing and seeing what the, the past government reviews have been with the industry. What has that discussion been and what issues are there? And then asking the risk question. If you ask the risk question and you get back for a major program that everything's green and I don't have any big risk, then more than likely your program manager doesn't really know what's going on in the program. All big programs have risk and issues. All right, I apologize for treating you like a pinball, Greg, but I'm gonna send you back to the chief procurement uh, office role for a second. Once you have, start to have these meetings, what do you go and tell your workforce about what's about to happen to them, about the fact that new leadership is coming and maybe new priorities are coming, but, but what? What do you tell those folks? 
So I, I think you first set expectations by continuing to communicate. And when you think you've communicated enough, you communicate some more. And for most of the people in the organization, this is not a new cycle to go through. And as leaders, you need to walk your employees and your workforce through this and tell them that this is also an opportunity. Right? Every agency has issues that they would like to get raised and adjudicated and resolved. So this is an opportunity for an organization to show the value they have to the mission of the agency and to show them that they're thinking about how to make things better and then use this as a catalyst to move those issues forward. What do you do as that leader to then take those issues from your workforce back to the new leadership or, or the, the incoming leadership and really get their attention, really get them to understand this is something serious? But this becomes part of working with that internal transition team. You really want to get this in the smart books and get it on some of the briefing papers that'll be distributed to the teams as they're coming in and then be part of the briefing cycle when they come in, getting in the room, sitting with them, starting to build that reputation and build that relationship with them so that when you do bring these issues to the table, they'll give it due consideration. We just have a couple of minutes left, Greg, but I wonder historically, what is your sense of dramatic changes that have happened, redirections of programs, cancellations, those kinds of things over the history of transitions that you've been around government. I don't recall seeing huge dramatic changes that acquisition people should be scared of during these transitions, do you? I, I do not. And a lot of the functional and programmatic changes have been worked out uh, for the positive uh, for the acquisition process and cycle. There will certainly be some programs that the new team comes in and they'll look to delay it while they do a review and see how well it aligns with uh, new priorities uh, and policies. But as far as the structure and the mechanisms, uh, usually these are opportunities for goodness to happen, uh, not a risk for that process. Greg Giddens, thanks very much. It's great to have you back on the program. It's always a pleasure, Francis. Have a good evening. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.